Welcome back to the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. Uh, customarily concentrated commentary on the world of Doctor Who, but this is a time dilation episode. This is a year in review kind of thing, and that means uh, conversation and the time limit goes out the window, and I have two wonderful people with me returning for a second annual engagement in the year in review. Uh, a books editor at NPR, it's Petra Mayer. Hello! Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome back, Petra. It's great to have you back on uh, and the, the the continued bidding war between me and Reality Bombed for your services. Uh, you don't you don't have to have a war. I'm cheap. I'll just show up if you ask me to. But it's fun to have a war with Graham. Oh, all right. well, I'm then saying for me to to uh, interfere with your pleasure. <laughs> Welcome back. And uh, joining me on this episode is also the co-host of the new hockey podcast, Hockey Feels which has proved to me that hockey is the geekiest of sports. It's Rachel Donner. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Oh, goodness. Series 9 of Doctor Who. Let's get right into it. Um, I. It, it's interesting to me that in a year when over over on the in the UK when the ratings seem to be a little bit lower than usual, when it comes to buzz, this season seemed to be full of it just on a on a surface level Petra and Rachel what did you think of series nine and how satisfying was it well I thought it was surprisingly extremely satisfying um it is interesting that you talk about how the ratings are are lower in the UK I mean yeah there's that that's always sort of a narrative that comes up every now and again like oh my god uh, you know Doctor Who the ratings are falling um and I don't know whether or not they're counting sort of the overnights and the people watching on iPlayer um, although I do think this season has been a little bit less accessible to kids. Not that I mind being an old person, but... Um, yeah, they need to make it for us for now. It's, yeah, it's it's been enormously compelling TV. I'm not sure that I would show it to Doctor Who's, you know, typical Saturday tea time kid audience. But um, I, this, this whole season has sort of been a process of increasingly pleasant surprise with a couple of, eh, that could have been betters. But really, I mean, I, I think I, I told... Um, I told Graham this the last time I was on Reality Bomb. I'm going to have to start being nicer to Stephen Moffat because I really think he this season he took on board a lot of the criticisms that have been batting around about his work on the past few seasons. Uh, let's come back to that point. But uh, I want to turn over to Rachel. What did you think of this series? I thought it was definitely pretty strong. I maybe didn't think it was quite as strong as the general populace did uh, from start to finish. I think, you know, it... It followed what I think is a pretty normal TV season trajectory of starting off with a bang and then kind of dipping pretty far down and trying to climb its way back up to greatness at the end, which it did. Yeah. I'm not sure about the general populist buzz, but in terms of just old school, Twitter-loving, hardcore fandom, at least in North America, which is where I follow most of my Doctor Who fan friends, there was a lot of excitement over this one. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm wondering what was different this year. Even if it wasn't necessarily our favorite series ever, it definitely had buzz. Well, I think the two-parter structure had a big part to play in that because the stories um, had a little bit more meat to them. And, and I think that structure lent itself to really being able to live these characters in a way that we hadn't before. I definitely agree with that. I mean... For me, one of the weakest, or the weakest episode of the season was Sleep No More, which I think suffered partially because it was 
a standalone and therefore the monster reveal felt really cheap and quick and contrived and I was sort of waiting for a deeper, more thoughtful approach to it that they, I guess, could have done if it was in two pieces. But um, for me, and I think I already said this to Graham, sorry, so you're getting a rehashed (laughs) observation, but it is no less true now than when I first said it. Uh, What's different about this season is there's no Danny Pink. Oh, you know, what a relief. Yeah, I feel (laughs) bad because, you know, he could have been interesting, but I, I'm rewatching season eight now with my cousin because that's what he and I do. We watch Doctor Who, uh, and I remember liking season eight okay when I first saw it. I thought they were going in some vaguely interesting directions with Clara's character because there was nowhere to go but up. But I'm watching it now, and I'm just like, oh god, I'm so over the doctor and boyfriend fight over companion storyline. That is dead. It is. Ugh. Ah! And and there was coherence. virtually none of Clara's life outside of the TARDIS this yeah, series and, at all, which I thought was refreshing. Yeah, definitely. It, and it's, which made me a little bit sad because I liked, you know, I liked seeing Donna's and Rose's. And I, I liked seeing the other companions' lives, that, lives outside the TARDIS. But my problem with Clara is that I never believed she had one because she was such a contrived character to begin with. She was just an animate plot device. And so when they tried to build up this whole backstory with her career and her life, I was like, ah, you protest too much. I'm a, I've a mixed feelings about that. Um, I'm a big fan of Jenna Coleman. She's a wonderful actress. I just don't think she was well served by this part. Well, I, I I had the I had the plot device instead of a character uh, feelings about her at various times during series, series seven, and series eight. Um, even as much as I like Jenna Coleman and as much as I like the personality of Clara, uh, but when we went into this season, I was starting. I was at first wondering, well, where's Clara? She isn't the plot device of series seven, and the personal struggles that she had that drove series eight so much they were gone i was starting to feel like she was just a generic companion which i wasn't sure served clara all that well either well and i can see you know where that came into play especially in the um, girl who died woman who lived two-parter where it was really a shoulders story and clara was kind of an afterthought i think yeah which bummed me out a lot which is why i didn't like that two-parter very much I like anything with Maisie Williams in it. Yeah, I I think the character was just too compromised by her origins. I never really believed her rapport with the Doctor or believed that she was a real person. But I feel differently, actually, about season nine. I think the the thing that they were getting at about how being with the Doctor was changing her in, in sometimes unfortunate ways and how they weren't really quite healthy for each other, I, I thought that was very interesting. I, I, liked the, I, I liked the willingness to kind of explore unflattering aspects of the companion and her relationship with the doctor. You know, I, I'm also, you know, I ship Rose in 10, so there's that. But <laughs> but I do, you know, I thought it was really interesting. I, I was impressed that they were willing to kind of, especially in Face the Raven, where she essentially dies because she kind of goes off half-cocked, like, I, I can be the doctor, I've been the doctor before, I'll do this totally doctor thing, because I can totally pull it off. And, and it doesn't. It sort of dies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a Southern boy, so I had this little flash of painful recognition when Clara died basically as a result of, y'all watch this. You know, um, that's the that's the Southern um, battle cry right there. But by the end of the series, um, 
and especially with her death and her last appearance in Hellbent, any mojo that she might have lost, it's it's back with a vengeance. And, and it's her story again, I think. Yeah, I, I think that their relationship has been such a big part of Capaldi's doctor overall. And um, I found it interesting, kind of the bookends of this series were like in um, Magician's Apprentice, she's in a giant crowd and he picks her out and says, when do I not see you? And in the last episode, Hell Bent, they're literally the only two people in the room and he's right across from her and he doesn't recognize her at all. All the feels. I know, right? All the feels. But I have to say, when I saw that episode, my first thought was, it's Donna Fix-It fanfic! Because I, you know, maybe like to read a lot of fanfic in my spare time. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, okay, fine. So it was my least favorite companion that got the the great exit. But, I mean, it was as, as, as if Moffat had sort of picked into my brain and picked out all the things that pissed me off about Donna and gone, wait, we'll fix it. I mean, there's Clara and she has agency and she says, this is my past. I, dem- you know, I, I demand to be able to keep it. And, and she faces down the doctor and ah, that gave me all the feels, frankly, <laughs> was, yeah. was her go out on such good terms and, and sort of getting the plot line that I had always kind of hoped she would get, which was, you know, back in the, original show if it had continued i guess they they said ace would have gone on to become a time lord and that's kind of more or less what what more or less anyways what happened to clara one of the other things that i like about clara's exit is it's a way that moffat allows himself and us to have his cake and eat it too because clara has a heroic death which we're told in the end of hell bent you know it still stands and she's eventually going to go back to gallifrey and uh, close the loop but she gets to be the doctor herself. She gets to adventure in a freaking classic TARDIS for as long as she and a shoulder feel like they can get away with. Which was gorgeous, by the way. That was gorgeous. Although I have to say, like, I did not love that she died but didn't really die. Like, one of my biggest problems with the past couple of seasons, and although I'm slowly reconciling myself to it because I now I see that it, prevent, it presents storytelling opportunities but I just was so PO'd about the return of Gallifrey because I felt like it just yanked the rug out from the entire run of the series just the emotional stakes were just gone it it was like you know how like in comics they say the only comics character who stays dead is Spider-Man's Uncle Ben like it was like bringing him back (laughs) that was a big betrayal it was to me that like this huge wrenching desperate conflict that is so shaped the characters of of the new show's doctors is suddenly oh bye bye hand wavy I'm not happening so th- this propensity that the show has to kind of cheapen these big emotional moments by by saying psych everything's okay I I could you know I'm pretending that didn't happen I'm actually pretending Clara didn't die I'm hoping I- that that's kind of where the kid factor comes into play oh that's true that's a good point in that you know it's it's a little bit better for the kids if the important people don't stay dead you know danny pink can stay dead Ah, and and adric (laughs) can stay dead (laughs) yes (laughs) that's just fine you know the kids don't won't mind that too much but but i think it's a good balance for the adult audience and the kid audience there you know that was one of the grimmest death scenes that we've ever seen in Doctor Who uh, when Clara's 
by herself in that uh, alleyway, and the raven flies into her. We we go to slow mo. She gasps a couple of times, and you wonder if uh, she's going to escape her fate after all. And then the black smoke puffs out, and all that stuff. It's really, really amazingly harsh. And you're right, I think, Rachel, to, to or, or or Petra, whichever one of you said that, you know, the contrast that with the ending of Hell Bent, where uh, she and Ashilda are doing the the TARDIS is lurching and they're crouching to the crouching to the uh, floor excitedly as the their TARDIS takes off. It does lighten the load a whole lot. So, Petra, you said something about changing your opinion of Stephen Moffat here a little bit. I've heard you on Pop Culture Happy Hour and on Reality Bomb. Uh, In the past, you have, let let us say that you have not been charitable in your judgment of Stephen Moffat's ability to write female characters. Am I I being fair in that assessment? Uh, You are being fair, although it makes me sound like a mean person <laughs> <laughs> did i just uh, hear no, a little being fair and i i am still you know the things that annoyed me in the past i still find annoying um yeah but, but you I know I, I, if, I, 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 do, I do want to break in there for a second you know that is a subject that of, of which you know huge arguments uh my friends on the verity podcast and other uh, and, uh other fans you know there's no consensus on 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 that subject and i've got some um female doctor who podcasting friends who will bitterly argue that Moffat does write uh, female characters very well. Uh, be that as it may, something changed this year for you. Yeah, I, I have had some s- serious issues with Moffat's, not only his, his wi- well, particularly his women, but just his ability to also just to write characters who respond appropriately to the crazy stuff that's going on around them. And I think that it's very important to call people out for things like this, but it's also very important to remark to, to note it when it looks like the person you've called out has thought about what people are saying to them and has tried to incorporate, has learned and tried to incorporate some of the criticism into their work. Because I really think that this season, I mean, not only were there interesting things done with Clara's character, but what I really loved were just all the incidental women. There were all these little side characters who could have been anyone, really, but they were they were women. And one of the problems that I'd, I'd had in the past uh, with Moffat's women was that they seemed to be driven by their biology. They seemed to be driven by their relationship to a man or their need for a baby. I mean, I'm, this is not even Doctor Who. This is like a whole bunch of other places where I've seen his work. Uh, they seem to be sort of predicated on the men in their existence. Um, and certainly Clara, you know, her start, she, the universe brought her into existence to save the Doctor. There is a female character who's completely predicated upon the man in her life. She has no other reason to exist, right? So I think I was rightly PO'd about things like that. But this season, so like I said, not only has there been this development of Clara's character to be more more well-rounded and more interestingly flawed, but there have been also these women, just, you know, unit soldiers and a sheriff and, you know, just characters who have like Cass. Right. One of my favorites. (laughs) And and they're just, they just, being female is just something about them. It doesn't drive them. It's not the center of their existence. They don't like, I think this year, finally the show really passed the Bechdel test, which is a completely unscientific thought of mine. I haven't really applied the Bechdel test to past seasons, but I don't know. That's just what occurred to me. Like suddenly it does. And that makes me happy. And I, I'm really gratified to see 
women being treated better by my favorite show. Rachel, what did you think? Well, it's a little bit of a mystery to me because I'm definitely a showrunner neutral Doctor Who viewer. And I, I don't especially like Moffat or RTD better than the other or, you know, even going back to the classic series, I'm kind of showrunner neutral. And so... I, I can see people's criticism of Moffat, but I generally take each episode on a case by case, individual episode basis of do I like it? Do I not? Do I, do I like the way the characters are developed or not? And, um, you know, whether it's Moffat writing it himself or there's another writer, even though he has the influence of being a showrunner, you know, there's there's a lot of different factors at play. And everything that Moffat has said in interviews and, you know, you read articles that he, he doesn't appear to be affected by fans in his writing. He seems to deny it and he seems to want to do his own thing. It's his show and, and it's his universe and he's going to monkey with it and do with it what he will. And, and so part of me says, well, yeah, maybe he was responding to criticism and tried to incorporate stronger female characters or, or characters with more depth to them. And like Petro was saying, but part of me says maybe this was here all along or within him all along. And he just kind of bubbled a little bit more of it to the surface. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I can't point to a reason things changed, but I think it's fairly apparent that things did change because it is such a string of strong characters. Um, Cass was the commander um, on in under the... in before the flood and under i'm mixing mixing those names under the lake lake and before the flood thank you thank you for saving me on that one who are some of the other memorable characters there well we had the canonic now now it's canon that time lords can gender and race switch with the general which was pretty awesome yep yeah uh let's see here a shielder of course who i think i i was not all that big on a shielder Early on, um, the highway the highwayman episode just didn't click for me. But when I realized that every time we were going to see her, she was going to be you know at a different stage in her life, and she was just going to be playing different kinds of characters, I was on board, and I really loved her in Hellbent. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, I hope they're, they've set her up as a recurring character. I mean, who knows? Maisie Williams is an immortal, so she'll I guess she'll age. But um, I really want to see me come back because. I like the idea of another immortal out there who's not a time lord, who's going to who and who has a who has a very interesting and complicated relationship with a doctor. I think there's lots of story potential there. And of course, uh, Missy, yeah, in the first two parter, you know, um, I know you know comes back from last season, but nonetheless was just phenomenal. And the banter between them was like Clara and Missy scenes together were just magic. I thought. I would totally watch a Clara and Missy spinoff show. Oh, um, I know. I, I hope that they have their own little like nemesis re- or something. Or like, like, you know, if like Clara and Ashilder had like their own nemesis kind of relationship with Missy. Oh, that would be awesome. You know? <laughs> I mean, we've been talking, we've been hearing people saying, okay, big finish. Here you go. We need audio adventures for yes, Clara please. and Missy. I mean, for Clara and a shielder, let's get Missy in the mix as well. Michelle, oh, how great would that be? I, and I think that like the change between last season and this is kind of almost encapsulated in Missy because suddenly here she is and she's not acting like the doctor's Twitter-pated girlfriend. 
I mean, she she was orchestrating some kind of bizarre plot to get his attention, but I don't know. The, the way that last season culminated with kind of her orchestrating this enormous season-long arc plot just to be able to give him an army so that, I don't know, so that he would love her or something. I just, ugh. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty out-with-a-whimper finale yeah, exactly. last season. So it was nice to see, it was nice to see her come back you know, with a bang, so to speak. I'm oversimplifying it, but we ended the last season with a cyber brigadier. And we began this season with Missy casually shoving Clara down a hole. You know, it, it, it just... Yeah. And into a Dalek. And into a Dalek. It, it's, <laughs> just, it, it's just... And I really liked Series 8. I may have liked it slightly better than series nine because i thought the the great episodes like flatline and mummy on the or or orient express were really really great and i'm wasn't sure that until the end of this series that we got um individual episodes that really rose to that level but be that as it may i thought missy was better this series i thought the doctor was fascinating this series let's talk about him for a little bit he had the pretty consistent story arc back in series eight where he was doer and he was finding himself and he was suspicious of himself and really really spiky and then he makes his entrance this series playing a get an electric guitar on a tank yeah massive infusion of tom baker um massive infusion of peter capaldi well that too that too absolutely the punk rocker gets uh, gets to put some punk rock in the character what did you all think of Capaldi, uh, Capaldi's performance, and uh, what did you think of uh, how the Doctor was different this year? Let's start with you, Rachel. I loved that framing device of the guitar playing throughout the series, um, and you know his little monologues of introspection and storytelling, and I think it it created just this really nice tone for the series overall, and it was something I looked forward to every time it showed up. Uh, and I think it it kind of give a, gave us a little bit of alone time with the Doctor. Then we got a lot of alone time with the Doctor in Heaven Sent. Yeah. But I think that the series overall benefited from that. And then we just got this tour de force performance from him throughout the series, I think. But again, there was kind of this slow build. And, you know, there was a little bit of a hint at it at the end of Zygon Inversion. And then... Um, just his emotion in Face the Raven and what he could do with his face and and that last conversation that he has with Jenna Coleman. It, it's, it's breathtaking. And then just heaven sent, like, just throw all the awards, all the awards at him. Have we ever had an actor in the role of the Doctor who was as good at performing without saying a word? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing about just how enormously expressive his face is. I remember um, there was a show called The Hour. I don't know if either of you guys watched it. Um, yes. he, was in it. he was in the second season. And there's this one scene where, and he plays this guy who, who, who kind of keeps in control by fiddling and arranging stuff on his desk. And there's this one scene where he gets some terrible, terrible, heartbreaking news, and he and he just kind of without even saying a word, he starts fiddling with the stuff on his desk, and he and he gets more and more and more out of control, even though he's desperately trying. He's not talking at all; it's just all in his face and his body language. Until finally, he's just flinging things off the desk left and right and completely losing his mind. But he does it all 
without saying a word. I mean, he's just the most, and and that's kind of he's so good at that. Just the the well, his last uh, the last scene he has in Torchwood Children of Earth. Oh God, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but can I? Oh, can I just say before I forget? Since you mentioned the Zygon episodes, we haven't uh, going back to the amazing female characters. Oh my God, Osgood. Yet another, like, death that was cheapened when she wasn't psyched, she wasn't actually dead. But, you know, Osgood's role in the story and the way that she embodies the peace between the humans and the Zygons and, and the way she turns down the offer to go traveling with the Doctor because she has this important mission on Earth. And I just, ah, all the feels. Also, I love Osgood. Ingrid Oliver was magnificent. I liked the character well enough in her previous appearances, but... There was there was backbone and steel in uh, in Osgood yes. this time around, and Ingrid Oliver was just fantastic. I really I, want her to be the next companion, <laughs> even though it's probably not going to happen. I also loved Jenna Coleman's Bonnie character. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, um, and it was great the way she managed to sort of con- manage to convey being a completely different person. Yeah. So we need to turn around. We need to bring it down a little bit. We need to be analytical fans for a minute here. It wasn't always good, was it? No, I mean, Sleep No More did not. It's not not a controversial opinion to say that Sleep No More kind of sucked. I didn't say it sucked. I think it was even more upsetting because it was on the verge of being amazing. That the way that it played with way the way looking and seeing and ideas of perception and the way you could see changes in the story and gradually realize what was going on because you could figure out who was looking at who and what the camera's perspective was. And then it was just undone by this you yeah, know, there, there was something good there. There really was a really good thread there. It just went off the rails. There's they good in him. Wise. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been back to this monster well just one too many times. The idea of, oh, there's this thing that you never think about that's always there. You just never think about it. And it's really a scary monster. Like, that's every freaking monster in Doctor Who for the past three years. <laughs> and and I would say the monsters were the weakest part, part of this season overall. Yeah. Uh, I, I uh, In concept or execution? Both. Well, in in execution, they were really interesting. I was looking at them thinking, you know, that they were a direct descendant of the of the green bubble wrap monsters. Is that from like is that Ark in Space? I think it's Ark in Space. It is Ark in Space. Yeah. Um, because you know you could see that they were clearly dudes in rubber suits. But I was actually really marveling at the production design and the design of the monsters, the way they had those terrifying huge mouths and no eyes, and and to me that meant oh, and they were in this dim light. Which meant, oh well, they then they don't have to do animatronics for the face. It's much cheaper. That's really ingenious. But the fact that I was thinking about that during the episode kind of meant that it had lost my exactly. You know. That that's the thing is the monsters took me out of it. Yeah, they were just pretty like, consistently. That Fisher King was terrible. And I just don't believe in evil eyes. Not I just don't. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to defend the Fisher King. I'm a University of North Carolina graduate and basketball fan, and uh, former UNC basketball player Neil Fingleton was the seven-foot, God-knows-how-many-inches guy inside the Fisher King suit, but no. Not a good enough reason. I actually, no. I, I don't know, that didn't uh, didn't upset me that much. And, I, and I what? Just, you know, nothing's worse than the, nothing's worse than the absorbable off, frankly. I know, but the Fisher King looked like it belonged in Power Rangers. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. 
And whatever that thing was, was it in the the girl who died or the woman the woman who lived maybe? Oh, the god, the lion man, oh. the lion man thing. Oh, I mean, that was make just as bad. Survival. Yeah. So as great as the production design has always been, uh, the the creature the creature work uh, seemed to falter a little bit. Um, have much? I mean, the, you know, they have. Yeah, but the concept of them much. wasn't very good either. Yeah, it was like, why did he need to be a lion man? He could have been. I some- can just be a man. Yeah. yeah, and that would have probably been more convincing. They they sort of went for something that they they reached for something that they didn't need. Yeah. Well, uh, were there any episodes that disappointed you more than Sleep No More, or will we call that one the nader? That's the low point for me. Rachel? Yeah, I really didn't like The Girl Who Died very much at all. Um, I mean, it had a goofy, like, electric eels, honestly. (laughs) And I just, I don't know. And I think total personal bias, but I don't watch Game of Thrones. And so I was kind of put off by the Maisie Williams hype around it, so... I didn't really want to like her or like uh, it. Fair and and I think that wore out. I, I actually, you know, I did come to like her at the end for sure. But I, I don't know. I just was like, yeah, I don't get it. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't the strongest episode of the season. I feel yeah. like that was one of these ones where like, and there've been a couple of them in the past few years where they have this amazing idea like pirates in space Vikings in space. Dinosaurs on a spaceship. Actually, that one episode was pretty good. I know. It was. But it was. But Black Spot was not. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I think, okay, I mean, obviously this episode was there to introduce us to a shoulder, but they, but maybe there could have been more thought given to the plot device, the, the exactly. plot mechanism used to, used to get there at the end. Right. Well, this, this season, we had two episodes that really were innovative really tried to break the mold and that was sleep no more and heaven sent and i was disappointed in the uk they use something called an appreciation index to sort of track not just ratings but the appreciation index tracks how much people actually liked the episodes they get these these panels of like 500 regular folks who uh, who fill out their diaries and by far the lowest rated of this series and one of the lowest rated since Doctor Who ever came back was Sleep No More. But I was disappointed to see that Heaven Sent was pretty lowly rated too. And that was just a tour de force. And it makes me worry a little bit. Um, we were talking early on about how this episode may not have been the most accessible for younger viewers. Have we just sort of had demonstrated to us that there's only so far that we can go with uh, breaking the Doctor Who format? Well, I will admit that when I saw that episode, I thought, oh my god, this is amazing. This is fantastic. They finally figured out how to write 12. I would walk through fire for Peter Capaldi. I don't know that this is a viable way that Doctor Who can go forward because it is a really wrenching hour of TV. And this is a show that that was originally a kid's show. I mean, that point's been made, but, you know, it, it's still it's still valid. So I'm really glad that they did that episode. Uh, and I'm sad that nobody liked it, but I'm not surprised. It's the second lowest rating of the year, uh, but it's not a it's not a hugely low number for heaven's sake. So, well, that's- um, but still, it, it makes me worry a little bit that uh, series 10 is going to be a little more conventional. 
Do you have any concerns about that, or do you think that Moffat knows what he's doing? He'll do the stories that he wants to tell, and uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have to say, conventional doesn't bother me as long as it's well done. I mean, conventional doesn't have to be bad, and also, this is a story. This is a show with fifty years worth of convention to pick from. So, I support storytelling. You know, I support experimental storytelling and difficult emotional stuff. That's the technical term. But I also support storytelling choices that will keep the show going as long as possible. So, um, you know, if it is more conventional next year, I, I, I won't be sad as long as it's as long as it's well executed. What about you, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I, I think back to season five, Moffat's first year. And to me, that was sort of the whole series was like a fairy tale. And that was the tone of it. And this one, I think the tone was a mystery and and just puzzles to solve. And, you know, I think whatever tone he picks, he, he manages to, f- to fit each episode into that tonal theme. And so I assume that'll be something different next year, but it'll be good. And we'll have a new companion, too. So we'll be getting to know somebody at the same time, which may distract us a little bit from some of the looking at some of the other elements of the stories uh, as we're trying to get to know this new character. But, I, you know, I think Moffat's going to do what he wants to do, especially if it turns out it's his last year. And that does seem to be a strong possibility based on interviews that he's given and things like that, that he wasn't even necessarily going to come back after the upcoming Christmas special. He thought that that might be his last uh, chance to write River Song. But... I think it's. I think there's a good chance that uh, series ten will be uh, Stephen Moffat's last season. Um, Especially if Peter Capaldi only does the one more year. Is yeah. I, think no. I think they'll go out together. Uh, can I just say, by the way, about the Christmas episode, uh, my my praise of of Moffat's work this season is entirely conditional upon the Christmas episode because I have major issues with the treatment of River Song. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I'm going to be watching carefully. Oh, well, any final thoughts about uh, Series 9 and about, um, and, and, and especially in your case, Petra, about enjoying Doctor Who again? Well, I'm sure you've enjoyed oh, hey, it always. but I uh, always enjoy Doctor Who because it's always Doctor Who. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have like a Pavlovian response to the theme tune. When I hear it, I just feel happy. So <laughs> even, you know, it's, it's not like I'm going to be rewatching the, you know, pig slave Daleks in Manhattan episode from season three, if I don't have to, but there's no, you know, even, even Dr. Who that I don't like is still my favorite show. Lovely. Um, well, having, having applied that corrective forcefully to me, um, any, <laughs> any, fi- any final thoughts on series nine? I really enjoyed it. I re- like the whole season, was a process of me and my roommate watched it together and we just kept saying, my God, this is really good. This is really good. Oh my God, this is really good. And it was just enormously pleasurable and gratifying to have that reaction to, uh, to Dr. Who and also um, Peter Capaldi is my new TV boyfriend. Sorry, David Tennant, you've been replaced. Well, to be fair, I mean, David Tennant's being creepy on another show right now. I'd be concerned if he was still your well, TV boyfriend. Now. I mean, I, as a true hardcore Tennant fangirl, I have seen Secret Smile. I have seen... Oh, yes. Like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. 
I, I keep trying to point people in that direction for some uh, precedent. And uh, yeah, I uh, I've seen a lot of, of of David Tennant on screen, and I've seen him do unsavory. I actually think he's one of those actors like Hugh Grant. I'm getting off track here, but like one of those actors who um, gets cast as kind of stuttering nice guys, but is really much better playing a slimy villain. Anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jessica Jones. I haven't seen yet. I'm. Trying to say, I know it's supposed to be amazing. I'm psyching myself up for for an hour of wrenching in difficult television. But um, anyways, I love this season, and Peter Capaldi is the best. Rachel, do you concur, or do you have a do you have a different take? Um, I really liked this season overall. I I'm still uh, in the midst of my uh, scientific unscientific study of all of the new series finales to see if it really is my favorite series finale. Um, I've watched six of them so far, uh, in my soft spot for, for the stolen earth, but this is the best man. Yeah, I I really think it is. Um, you know, I just need to prove it for science and Peter Capaldi, (laughs) Peter Capaldi is definitely my favorite actor in the role of, of the doctor in the modern era. I, I don't know if he's, if 12 is my favorite doctor yet, but Peter Capaldi is my favorite actor in the role of the doctor. That's a fair distinction. And, um, I think I agree with you. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big tenant fan girl too, but I, yeah. Capaldi just continues to amaze. And I'm really glad that we've got at least one more year with him. Uh, Rachel Donner of the Hockey Feels podcast. Where which has nothing to do with Doctor Who. Which has nothing to do with Doctor Who, but it is... Uh, I've decided that hockey is the geekiest sport known to man, man and womankind, but uh, as a result of listening to you and Stephen talk about it, where can people find the podcast? Uh, you can subscribe to it via Libsyn or iTunes. You just search Hockey Feels, and you can follow us on Twitter at Hockey Feels. Uh, and Petra... We occasionally find you on a certain podcast out there in the ether, don't we? Uh, yes, you do. Uh, my day job is that I'm a, an editor at NPR Books, but every now and then I get to go and play with the cool kids on Pop Culture Happy Hour, um, and it's always a pleasure when they let me come and play with them. And Petro, if we wanted to find you on Twitter, where would we find you? I am at, at Petromatic, although there are days that go by when I forget that I have a Twitter account. If you say something to me, I'll talk back, but I tend to otherwise forget that it's there. Uh, there's That's one of the best Twitter handles ever. It's a crime that you're not uh, using it more often. I'm an old person, dude. You know, I... <laughs> I take take me back to Usenet. That I understand. And Rachel, if people want to get a hold of you on uh, Twitter, where could they get you? I'm at R Miriam. All right, Rachel Donner, Petra Mayer, thank you both so much for being on 2MTL. Uh, and we will be back before too long to talk with Eric Stadnick and Kyle Anderson. We're going to go deep and nerdy into the scripts of series nine so that's a cup uh, upcoming episode of the two minute time lord podcast which you can find at twominutetimelord.com and i'm on twitter and facebook at numeral two minute time lord thank you all so much for listening and we'll come back to you real soon now